welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Global Warming, The Science and the Sin by Dr. Bijan Namadi. Link to video version in the description below. about uh, what's going on tonight. This is a Theology on Tap. If you've not been before, this is something that uh, Trinity Reformed Church in town puts together every so often. We try to have smart people like Dijon come and talk to us about interesting topics. So uh, we're excited about tonight. I'm going to give an intro uh, for Bijan, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of long, uh, and I tried to cut out I tried to cut out stuff, but there's this is a very accomplished really? man. So, so uh, I'm just going to go for it. So, Dr. Namadi is a principal research scientist at UAH. uh, He's received his PhD in high energy physics from the University of Washington based on research uh, based on research on heavy quark decays. I'm sure we all know what that means. uh, Detected at uh, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Uh, After postdoctoral work at the Cornell Synchrotron. 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 Yeah. Synchrotron, I know what that is, I just I to see if everybody was there. He left particle physics to work on advanced astronomical instruments at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, inspired by work at, uh, by other Discovery Institute fellows, particularly uh, the Privileged Planet uh, by Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez and J. Richard, Dr. Namani led several uh, key test beds at JPL that together demonstrated the feasibility of astronomic detection of Earth-like exoplanets in the habitable zones of nearby sun-like stars. Uh, Dr. Namani's work on the uh, NASA's uh, flagship space interferometry mission proved that the instrument could self-calibrate at the level needed to detect exo-Earths. And for these achievements, Dr. Namadi was awarded NASA's Exceptional Engineering Achievement Medal. Uh, I've got a few of those, so it's cool. Twenty fourteen, Dr. Namadi has been part of the development team of an exoplanet imaging instrument that will be part of NASA's Roman Space Telescope, scheduled to launch sometime after twenty twenty five. I'm going to stop there, but there's a lot more, and there's a lot that was cut out of that. So anyway, I think we've established your bona fides. It's exciting to uh, be here, have this have this opportunity to hear you talk about this topic. So, welcome, All right. please welcome Dr. Martin. Thank you all for coming tonight. I'm just going to put out a little call for if anybody's got a, a lozenge, like you know, for like a Ricola or something. I happen to have. have gotten a sore throat just for this you know okay thank you so much i'm in good shape now i appreciate it i sent a distress signal to my wife she may get it you know but this is now good thanks a lot so the topic is global warming and particularly anthropogenic and please feel free to come in as you as you are comfortable uh, i won't mind um anthropogenic global warming Anthropogenic means uh, man-caused. So AGW, 
AGW, anthropogenic global warming, is our topic. The claims of AGW are like this, that during the 20th century, uh, the surge in industrialization has caused an, uh, a rapid rise in CO2, which is a greenhouse gas. And that as a result of that, the global temperatures have risen to unprecedented levels. And as a result of that, this global warming is going to cause catastrophic effects. Now, this is bolstered by data on, on um, CO2 uh, rise in, uh, in the atmosphere. This data is collected um, uh, you know, at the Mauna Loa Observatory. You see it rising. The units are parts per million. And you see we were about 100, 410 parts per million. The little red curve actually wiggles because half the year the plants, uh, there's growth. And, and plants are taking the CO2, so the, it's down. CO2 is down in the atmosphere because the plants are sucking it out of the atmosphere. And then they, it gets released in the winter. So, so you, that's what the wiggles are. Um, and this is a greenhouse gas. Question. Is it half the planet in winter and half in summer? Why would, why, why would the, well, Mauna Loa is whatever Mauna Loa is measuring. I just thought of that on the, fl on the fly. <laughs> that was a hard one. <laughs> Please ask easier questions than that. Um, that was a close one. Um, all right, so greenhouse effect. What is greenhouse effect? We start with something called black body radiation. Um, think, think of a horseshoe, and you are uh, heating it in the, in the, uh, um, the iron in the, in the fire. At first, it's just black. As you get, heat it up, it starts getting to be a dull red. If you manage to heat it enough, it'll be white hot. If you were managing to heat it even further, it would be blue hot. And eventually, it would be so blue that you couldn't even see it. It would be, by then, that point, it would probably come apart, long before that effect. But basically, this is called black body radiation. Every object is radiating away it, uh, as a result of its, uh, the temperature that it has above absolute zero, minus 270 uh, Celsius. Now, that black body radiation rapidly rises as a function of temperature, with the fourth power of the temperature. So that, imagine you had the Earth and the sun, and you turn on the sun. The Earth starts warming. Energy's coming in. And the Earth, as it warms up, starts glowing, at first in radio, and then in the deep infrared, and then in the infrared, and then in the red, and then in the visible, but at some point, you know, it's glowing back. It's, it's at four, with the fourth power of the rising temperature. So eventually, what it's giving out is what, equal to what's coming in. It stabilizes, and that's the temperature. Without an atmosphere, that would be about zero, I think it's around zero Fahrenheit. Now you put an atmosphere, primarily water. Water is the most important greenhouse gas, by far. And now what happens? Uh, this, this black body radiation that's coming out, mostly in the infrared, happens at, in, at some of its wavelengths be just the right wavelengths to be absorbed by a molecule known as H2O. And H2O has various modes of dancing and wiggling, and each one of them has its own wavelength. And at these different wavelengths, it sucks out all the energy as it passes by. As a result of it, it gets very excited. It gets hot. As a result of that, it radiates itself the way that we just said the Earth does. 
And, but half of it goes up and half of it goes down. The part that goes down now gets some heat back to the Earth. Now the equilibrium is achieved with a warmer Earth than before. This is the greenhouse effect, basically. There's more here. There is a convective process. It's a little more fancy. Actually, a lot more fancy. But I think this is enough of it for us to, to get by. So the green, no question that water is a greenhouse gas. CO2 is a greenhouse gas. And that CO2, when, uh, when the Earth was CO2 starved at the beginning, um, as you added CO2, and particularly water, the temperature was rising rapidly. But the effect slows down. Now, the evidence for global warming is usually done with a plot like this. This is known as the, the, the blue part, which is the temperature, is known as the hockey stick graph. It looks like a hockey stick. The temperature that this plot appears to show that for a thousand years the Earth temperature was stable until industrialization in the 20th century, at which point CO2 rose, and concurrent with that you can see global temperatures rose. Okay. And not only that, if you look at the ice core data, which uh, through the use of proxies and isotopes you can essentially know the measurement. You can measure temperatures a very long time in the past, hundreds of thousands of years in the past. You look at that, and there is the, you know, the blue is CO2, the red is temperature, and there they are, very correlated. What's there not to believe? Okay. And not just that, but the climate models all predict a rise in temperature with increasing CO2. So we've got the uh, last 1,000 years temperatures. We've got the paleoclimate. And we've got the climate models all agreeing that CO2 causes a rise in temperatures, a, a signif significant rise. And so, so that is the, uh, the observations. That is, the, the, uh, that is what is cited. And, and as a result, you have a, a large number of the established institutions of science will have um, things like this. Earth will continue to be warm, and the effect, effects will be profound. OK, that's NASA. So, so that is the claim. And I'm now going to examine it a little closer. Okay, So let's look a little closer at the evidence and see what we've got. First, let's talk about the climate models. We just talked about climate models. Let's look at it a little more carefully. The climate models. To model anything that is, has to do with fluids is extremely hard. So many of you, I'm sure, are engineers. And some of you know about computational fluid dynamics and how difficult that is, um, the Navier-Stokes equations and all of that. And so it's, it's exceedingly hard. You can only fudge it. You can't really do a good job. You, know, with, you can't closed form solve it. So it's a tough job making a climate model. And the comp computing resources to do a really good climate model don't exist yet. However. You can parameterize the climate, and then, then your guesses as to what value of the parameters will do, let the climate do whatever you want. I'm a physicist, and there's a famous term in physics. With four parameters, I can make you an elephant. With five, I can make it wiggle its trunk. What it means is if you give me a lot of parameters, I can do it, make it do anything you want me to do. I can do a lot with a lot of parameters. You want, you want real truth? Take away my parameters, and let me see if I can 
predict it. That's, that's sort of the idea. These models have a ton of parameters. And look at what's happening. The red traits is the average of the climate models. The green are the measurements. The primary global temperature measurements are from surface measurements, from satellite measurements, and from balloons. Of these, the, t the surface temperatures we're going to examine. Uh, th there are issues there. But despite those issues, you can see the observations are dramatically, almost the entire population of climate models is out of sync with the measurements. Okay, So the models have problems. The other problem is, if you follow some of these traces, what you see is something even more subtle and but, but very interesting. The climate models have positive feedbacks. A positive feedback is a bad thing. A negative feedback is a good thing. Negative feedback says, whatever bad thing happened, I will undo it. I will do the negative of that and bring it back. Negative feedbacks give you stability. Positive give feedbacks give you instability. And nearly all of those models have a lot of wiggle in them. And that a lot of wiggle means they, have to, they got the feedbacks wrong. I mean, it's, so it's a diagnostic. This is something I learned from John Christie, who's the Alabama meteorologist, and who's at UAH. All right. Um, now, we showed this, I showed this hockey stick temperature graph. This is uh, shown in the IPCC's reports. It's been around for a few, about over a decade now. But when the IPCC first did their first assessment, this is what it looked like. The big, big thing there is the, the, the key point here is this thing called the medieval uh, warming period. If that plot is true, you cannot make a case that there is catastrophe waiting. During a time of prosperity on the planet Earth, when cathedrals were going up in, in Europe, when uh, there were streets named Vineyard out in Scotland, because there were vineyards, when Greenland was green, and there was sheep, and there were cultivation there, during that time, temperatures were right, higher than now. No catastrophe occurred, and there was no excess CO2. There was no, you know, there was no industrialization yet, and yet temperatures were larger than now. If this plot is true, it undercuts the claim of anthropogenic CO2 causing anthropo you know, global warming. So there is, a, unfortunately, a very sad story in the history of science that has to do with the, the behavior of climate modelers and scientists, not all of them, not all of them, um, in the last two decades. And there are even email exchanges that through freedom of exchange were found uh, Freedom of uh, Information Act, where people are talking about getting rid of that hump. And that's how it happened. And it happened, uh, there's a long story, we don't have time for it, but you can ask me afterwards how, you know, what, what was done. How, how does that bump disprove anthropogenic warming, though? Oh. It, it can say that it is less dramatic than what the claims are, but I don't see how that bump disproves the, the, the claim that catastrophic increase, I mean, that there will be a runaway effect now. Because before, it was higher, and there was no runaway effect. Why is there a runaway effect now? Oh, right. And I wouldn't say there is no anthropogenic warming. I would just say the catastrophe is the problem. This is a more recent construction. 
uh, with an average of many data. Again, the medieval warm period is seen. Now, if there is a medieval warm period, another ex way you can see it is that if the, as, our, as we are warming, glaciers are receding, what should you see if this is unprecedented warming? What, you see, what should you see as the glaciers recede? You should see rubble. What if you see instead a forest that used to be there under the glacier? That's what we see. This is the Mendelhall Glacier in Alaska, and that tree is 1,000 years old. This that dates back to the medieval warm period. Okay. This is a church from its time back when Greenland was green. It's green now, at least some of the year. People abandoned that in the 1400s because it got so cold, because an ice age occurred, and we are coming out of it. If you're coming out of a cold period, it's going to be a warming. It is not going to be you know, unsurprising that if you come out of the cold, it will be a warming. Here is that um, ice core data, the ice core history, temperature versus time on top of CO2 versus time. And no question, it's correlated. In uh, An Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore says, do these two go together? And everybody says, oh, yeah, they go together. Well, yeah, they go together, but let's look at it a little more carefully. Here's a zoom. Temperature goes up, and on average, 800 years later, CO2 goes up. CO2 is following the temperature, not causing the rise in temperature. Why is that happening? Most likely, it's because the solubility of CO2 in the ocean waters is temperature dependent. Just like if you take your cold can of Coke and you let it get warm, all, it'll go flat on you. It's the same effect. But it takes an ocean 800 years <laughs> to respond enough. But the greatest reservoir of CO2 is the ocean. So the, as the ocean temperature changes, the solubility changes, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere changes, and that's what you see. Now, let's go look at the, the temperature record. Now, we, we, we talked about the medieval warm period and the, and the paleoclimate. What about the ground temperature record? I said there were three, three primary ways of measuring the temperature. They were uh, the satellite data, balloon data, but you know we haven't had satellites in a long time. But the oldest temperature records in the US go to 1890. And in 1890, we were using a device on the left called the Stevenson screen. That little wooden box had a thermometer and a few other gauges in it. And that's how we measure temperatures. That's how we know temperatures since then uh, from US surface, temp uh, surface temperatures. Now, Anthony Watts, who um, made this whole story very clear about 10 years ago, tells a story of when he was in graduate school. And his professor had him go and service one of these Stevenson screens, the one on the left in the picture. And he went and like, looked at it, wrote some information. And he said there was all this white stuff you know, went on his hand. And the professor said, oh, yeah, that's white, uh, whitewash. And it's just, it flakes off. And you have to go back and put whitewash back on it. And he said, well, why don't you just paint it with latex paint or something? At least you can, you know, it will last a little longer. He said, if you lay, change it with change, and change it to latex paint, the emissivity of paint is different than whitewash. You'll mess up the temperature record. 
because it needs to be whatever they pick then, we will need to follow if we want consistency. This is the level of care and detail scientific work needs to have. Now, if that's a problem, how much more is a problem that you now build a concrete wall next to the temperature uh, measurement device, and you let cars park in front of it where the radiator, after the car stops, bellows out heat. And you have all these other features, metal towers. So what has happened is that as time has progressed and cities have grown, a lot of the temperature measurement devices are now more and more ur urbanized. And, and what you should do is take this thing, put it farther out in the field. But that's very inconvenient. Who's going to go measure it every day? And besides, you know, I want to just do it electronically. I only use wires. So the, mo the more modern ones, the MMTS device, which you can hardly see in this picture, but it's kind of pointed to MMTS shelter. It's a little thing. Um, but look at this. There's an asphalt parking lot getting hot, as opposed to a grassy field. There is uh, the walls over there. There's, there are air conditioners. And worst, worst of all in this one, the car can park there. And, and you know, the car, if you put your hand in front of a car after it's been driving, you wouldn't want to. That's not a measure of surface, you know, global temperatures, measure of temperature of the car. Here's another one in Texas. Um, same kinds of problems. There's a radio dish. That thing will get hot in the sun, and it's radiating onto this thermal. And so you can see what happened. When they brought it to this site, a temperature record just shot up. So this has been a problem that, uh, uh, statistically right now, 97% of these temperature sensors are in bad condition in the, in the ways that I've said. All of that orange and all the yellow are you know, many degrees off. And, and the red uh, is even worse. And so, so this, is, uh, this is one problem. This is essentially what's called a sighting problem. The sight is bad. But there's a general other problem. It's kind of related to this. It's called the urban heat island. In other words, if you ask the temperature, what's the temperature in rural, um, rural Georgia, you know, maybe 50 miles from Atlanta, and then you say, what's the temperature in down, downtown Atlanta on a summer day? Especially a summer night, where everything looks like it's cooling off, but the ground in, you know, and the concrete and the asphalt are just still glowing and hot. You can feel it. You can touch it. And so the herb, the, the, they will read bigger, higher numbers. So the surface record is, is problematic. And this was highlighted over a decade ago. The, the National Weather Service's solution to this was to homogenize the data, but what, they, what, the, what it effectively did was made the good data bad, too. And so and this is, by the way, France. This is the heat temperature of you know, various parts around Paris. Uh, and and you know, the, Paris is hot, and outside is cool. Um, and uh, really soon, uh, I, I stole this slide from him, but. If you take the temperature, you know, average temperature reconstruction from rural versus uh, city, the difference is a half a degree Celsius, about a degree Fahrenheit, over this period of time, just from the temperature, uh, uh, from the siding problem, half a degree per century. And okay, so so that's so these are the things. You know, the medieval warm period is real; it is observable in multiple ways and it speaks against a catastrophic 
uh, anthropogenic you know, disaster. The um, longer term data, the paleoclimates show an 800 year lag in the temperature record, record. Something else is changing the temperature and not the CO2. CO2 is responding to it. The um, te surface temperature record is exaggerating the warming because of siting problems and urban heat island effects. And the models that everybody is using for climate policy have tremendous bias in them. They have positive feedbacks, and they don't account for water enough and, and, the, and, and the negative feedbacks. And as a result, they all have uh, problems. And, and particularly, the paleoclimate result really exonerates CO2, in my opinion. CO2 is not it. And so then, if not CO2, we ask, well, what is it then? You know, some warming is occurring. Why is that happening? And, and what changes the climate? A clue to that comes from an interesting set of data. It is, is a paper from 20, 2001 by Neff et al. in Nature um, that shows over a very large uh, number of years, uh, thousands of years, uh, the correlation between uh, cosmic rays and uh, ocean temperatures cosmic rays and ocean temperatures. And in fact, if you zoom in, you can see the correlation is quite stark. And what is that? What is that? That's a clue. So the ocean temperature is, uh, it comes from oxygen 18 isotope. Oxygen normally is 16. Its atomic uh, weight is 16. But when the oxygen 18 is another stable isotope that exists. It's a little heavier. So probability of it getting knocked into the atmosphere from the ocean is just a tad low because it's, it's heavy, it needs a bigger kick. And as a result, in warmer years, oxygen 18's relative abundance is a little bit higher. It's always low, but it's higher because there's enough heat to throw it up in the atmosphere. The other one is from carbon-14. Carbon-14 gets created in the upper atmosphere from a process called spallation or sputtering, where protons from the solar wind essentially knock uh, uh, they hit carbon-12 and make uh, carbon-14. Um, and, uh, and, and so that new, th those processes essentially produce uh, these two isotopes. One is a proxy for temperature, uh, and the other is a proxy for cosmic rays. Now, what are cosmic rays? Um, we are in the Milky Way galaxy. There's 200. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I got one already. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's good to be safe. Um, so there are 200 billion stars in our galaxy, and, and when, the star, when a star is about more than eight times the mass of the sun, it can go supernova, and it lives a very short time, just a few million years, and goes boom. And when it explodes, that, that supernova, it makes a shock front that actually accelerates the, the, the uh, ejecta, and these particles just permeate the nearby galaxy. These things then, over, you know, uh, over time, when you're over like a few thousand years, because there are so many of them, and they've been doing this for so long, and they're all in long travel, the apparent flux near us is about this constant. So the cosmic rays are these high-energy particles. The lightest weight is the hydrogen nucleus, otherwise known as a proton. The next one is a helium nucleus, otherwise known as an alpha particle, and so on. And, and so, and it's usually, it's kind of like factors of 10, you know, 90%, like one in 10 are helium, and one in 10 of that is the next element up. So it's almost all protons, it's all hydrogen nuclei. 
These protons are very energetic. When they come in, bam, they hit the first molecule in the upper atmosphere, and they make uh, uh, particles, new particles, uh, with quarks in them, you know, pi mesons, you know, these pis and uh, gamma rays and stuff. And those things are now got such a big kick. When they hit the next particle, they go they go exploding into multiple particles. And so you get this thing that's called a shower. In fact, we're all getting showered with these particles as we speak. And these showers, most the, at the bottom end of this cascade is basically the only, only muons. Muons are a heavy version of the electrons, and electron, and they don't interact much with anything. And that's why they survive. Now, why is that important? It's important because these guys are related to the climate. If you look at the Earth from space, what you see is um, you know, the oceans, the land, and you see clouds. And, if, and where you see low, low clouds, you will see them very fluffy, very white. That's called the amount of whiteness or the amount of, like if you took a black and white picture, and the amount of lightness of color, that would be essentially proportional to something scientifically called the albedo. It's basically the ratio of the light that comes out from what goes in. So white, like fluffy clouds and snow, have like albedo of 70 80%. And oceans, which look so dark in those satellite pictures, are maybe albedo of 10%. So if the ocean is not covered with white, pluff, fluffy clouds, it's going to absorb all that energy from the sun. If you've got the fluffy white clouds, it's going to, a lot of that's going to go back up to space. Clouds basically cause cooling. Now, if you, um, if you look at the, 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 the occurrence of low-level clouds and you compare it to the amount of cosmic rays that are coming in from places on the Earth where cosmic rays are measured, you see this amazing correlation. The two go together very, very closely. And there is a theory as to what is happening. And the theory is basically this, that these cosmic rays Essentially, when they they when their children, you know, they, they call it in this kind of talk the children, these daughter particles, and their children and their children until there's a shower of particles. When they hit aerosols in the atmosphere, they make they ionize them, and that makes them cloud condensation nuclei. So, and these these cloud condensation nuclei become seeds for clouds. So, if these galactic cosmic rays make it to the atmosphere, they will make clouds. These cosmic rays that came from those exploding stars eons ago are making clouds now. However, there is a valve, and the valve is the magnetism of the sun. The sun essentially shields the Earth from those cosmic rays, but it shields it at different levels at different times. When the sun's shielding effect is large, which is a magnetic effect, the sun's magnetism is strong, then uh, it shields these cosmic rays from coming. As a result, clouds don't get formed. As a result, temperatures do go up. When the cosmic, uh, solar activity goes down, the cosmic rays make it right the way through, make the clouds, make it all cold here, because the, top, the cloud tops reflect the, uh, reflect the light. So, so the sun is modulating the Earth's temperature by modulating the amount of cosmic rays that can make cloud condensation nuclei on the uh, and that make clouds. That's essentially the heart of the the matter. It's quite a measure of cloud. What's that? How do you measure? Well, you can with satellites. You can certainly, you know, measure. Yeah. Me metric the cloud 
density? Yeah, yeah. By well, the laser through it or what? Well, you can, you can just, uh, you know, you have cameras. I mean, you can just, you know, you can, you can do LIDAR, you can, you can measure, you know, their, just their existences. I mean, a photo is even, you know, you can certainly see, you know, if you want to resolve temperature, you, then you would have to have other methods, and you can use LIDAR or something. You can just measure a cloud cover just by uh, taking a picture. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, like some of these pictures that I've shown, like the, that picture I was showing before, that was a, you know, that's a satellite image, uh, you know, and so you can, you can see them. And, um, and here, this is just talking about the difference of albedo between ground and snow and all of that. And so now a clue, um, so this is the theory. Now, the, how do you know this theory is right? Well, there is these, there's a few um, evidences from a long time ago. One of them is very strange. The astronomer Herschel noticed a correlation between the price of wheat and the number of sunspots. The price of wheat in England was correlated with sunspots. How would that work? Well, sunspots are correlated with solar magnetism, which is correlated with the temperature, which is correlated with the price of wheat. And sort of that, that's how it was happening. But um, there are events called coronal mass ejections that actually give you even a nicer, nicer experiment. Occasionally, the sun will have such a massive storm that the solar wind will have essentially what's a gust, and it will be so strong that it just kind of totally suppresses uh, cosmic rays. Not totally, but really dramatically suppresses cosmic rays on the Earth. When that suppression occurs, suddenly cloud production you know, drops. And these are called Forbush decreases. And so the, 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 um, the previous slide, let me see if I can go back there, just shows the cosmic ray flux from measurements on the ground from one of these events. You know, whoosh, you know, it goes down by some, some significant fraction. Within days of that, what we see is multiple satellites measuring various kinds of things. They, they measure aerosols, they measure clouds. They all see a drop in, in cloud level after a Forbush event. That, you know, the thing happened, and then the clouds went down. And that, that, is a, uh, that, is the, that is a very strong signal that this is what's happening. Yeah? There are particles in the atmosphere. It's like a hydrogen, I think sulfide, you know, you know that kind of thing. And uh, so, so the, the story is like this. The stronger the solar wind, which is the stronger the solar magnetism, there is fewer cosmic rays, and therefore fewer clouds, and therefore war more warming. And so there's a book called The Chilling Stars, which is, sort of goes into this at some, at some detail. So, so that's the story of, you know, poor CO2 is innocent. It's the cosmic rays. And so we are grateful for CO2. In this meadow that you look in this picture, everything that's green, all of this carbon is from atmospheric CO2. If there's no atmospheric CO2, there is no carbon in any of those plants, and there's no plants. So I wrote an ode to CO2. <laughs> Though oft maligned and much abused, carbon must for life be used. I thank my wife for fixing it. Um, it wasn't that good at the beginning. Um, so there's the, the, the smiley face I found on Google Images, but I, we put a C on it for the nose and the O's. And that's actually the structure of the CO2 molecule. So. There's our friend, Mr. CO2. Um, CO2 is known for something called photosynthesis. 
um, we, we appreciate photosynthesis. Carbon is a, an amazing uh, element in the periodic table. You know, in the old days, we watched uh, Star Trek or something, and it would say, oh, you know, silicon-based life and you know, carbon-based life. There is no such thing as silicon-based life. There will never be on any discovery anywhere a silicon-based life. I can say it now with confidence. Why? Silicon is different than carbon. Carbon chemistry is active at the right temperatures where water is actually liquid. And carbon will make ma macromolecules with metastable bonds, which means it can make very massive proteins and machines, molecular machines, which you can't do with silicon. Carbon is it. Carbon is a gift from God. It really is. And so is CO2. Two-thirds of CO2 is oxygen. That's the oxygen we breathe. And we breathe it through this process of photosynthesis, which takes the CO2 and makes the structure of the plant body, makes sugar, which is food for glucose for all animal life, and makes oxygen for us to breathe. What else would you want <laughs> from a poor little molecule? <laughs> you know, and, and, and by the way, the number one greenhouse gas is called H2O. Let's, let's consider that a pollutant next. How about O2? Um, and what, what, what's more is we want more CO2. When I said this at JPL once at a lunch, the guy was so ticked off at me, he just stopped talking. I just was like, you are way too crazy to, for me to talk to you ever again. <laughs> and he just like snapped. But CO2, we are nearly starved for CO2 in this planet. We're just doing a little better than we used to be. Here is um, the ambient, this is uh, some professor somewhere, he created this experiment in which on the left, now this is back when CO2 levels in the atmosphere were a little lower. And right now we're at 410, back then it was 385 per parts per million. So he made a little tent, he, grew, he started seedlings and he made a tent with ambient conditions, which was around 385 ppm of CO2. Then he made one with 150 more ppms of CO2, and another one with 300 more of ppms of CO2, and one with 450 parts per million more. That's 830, twice the level of CO2. That's where we might get to in a century if we're lucky. If we're lucky, but we might not be. What's that? Have to plant a lot of trees. Yeah, we, that, that would be great. It will, it will plant. It will, it will cause the leaf growth. There are two things that CO2 does. Number one, it's essential for photosynthesis. Number two, it changes the, effect, the, the shape of leaves and their ability. To, uh, it changes uh, their uh, basically uh, um, propensity to lose water so that if you have enough CO2, the plant doesn't need as much water to thrive. And so it helps two ways. So you can see that all the way to 800 parts per million, the plant is just happy as a clam. In fact, in greenhouses, people will go all the way to 1,500 parts per million, okay? And in fact, um, this NASA website is still up with this, that the, the, there's a, that the greening of the Earth, the Earth is getting greener, crop yields are at record highs. I'm, I'm 60 years old. When I was a kid, India was, uh, you know, we heard of, of, of starvation in India, right? Children with bellies that were you know, inflated just because of malnutrition and, and lack of food. India has been an, a net exporter of food for, a, for, for decades now. It is just, they are thriving. Their, 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 their uh, farming is thriving. Of course, there's different effects, different reasons for that. 
But CO2 is part of it. The yields are high. The yields everywhere are higher. If you look historically at CO2 levels, if you look at over large periods of time, we're actually at, at the nadir. We're at the bottom of CO2. All of this rise in CO2 is like that little blip at the end of, of that black line. Now, we're at 410 parts per million. At 150, photosynthesis would stop. And for, if photosynthesis stops, we won't be having this conversation since we won't live uh, long enough to have it. Um, so, so basically, um, in a way, if you're going to worry about something, worry about too little CO2. Um, so let's talk about climate alarm and its impact uh, from a humanitarian point of view. Climate alarm is everywhere, of course. You know, any, any website, you just Google it. Um, you, can't, you can't penetrate the thick layer of, of appeasism and you know, alarmism that, that is in the, in the search engines. You really, you just, it's very difficult to actually find information because it's all propaganda for the first 100 items in your search list. Once you can penetrate, you know, you, you might be able to find something. So you have to kind of do your search a different way. The folks who have really gotten enamored with this say things like this. In the near future, the world may need to resort to lockdowns again. Oh, that was fun. Let's try it again. This time to take a climate emergency. Under a climate-like lockdown, government would limit private vehicle use, ban consumption of red meat, and impose extreme energy-saving measures. This fellow, you don't know him, it's, his name is Schwab. Um, he, he says, he's, he's famously said, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow opportunity to reflect, reimagine, reset our world. And now he's saying the next climate crisis, the next crisis is waiting for us around the corner, and it's the climate crisis. And we're going to do what? We're going to own nothing and be happy. That's the same organization that tells us that. By the way, whose idea is this? No, nothing. It's Marx. This is Marxism. This is just plain, clear Marxism. Uh, that's that's really what it's all about. So this guy. To me, it looks like for this picture, he had to sh uh, shampoo. I don't know whose shampoo he used because he doesn't own anything and he's happy. <laughs> I don't know where, whose jacket that is either. Who's, where did he steal that? And of course, these guys go to Davos, which is a beautiful village, um, in private jets to talk about this, about us not owning anything and being happy. Um, but, but seriously, this is hypocrisy, but this is not the biggest problem, really. This is the biggest problem. The biggest problem is what's happening to the poor as a result of this. What is happening is that one-third of the world currently doesn't have access to, uh, to enough energy to eat. And so what they spend eight hours a day, typically, to gather dung, to gather wood, whatever they can, just to have heat. And, and to be able to cook. They do this in indoor, uh, uh, basically, fireplaces. And the, and the smoke inhalation causes 4 million children a year to die under five years old from indoor smoke. Millions of women die from indoor smoke. Indoor smoke uh, is, is a plague of poverty. James uh, Shikwadi, he's a Kenyan economist, he says the Af African dream is to develop. And that development means electricity, affordable electricity. We have electricity, and we, maybe we've forgotten what life is like if you don't have it. 
I, if there's one thing I would like you to take away from this talk is the picture of that smoke. It's really the, that's what it's all about. CO2 is not a pollutant, I claim, but indoor smoke is. Yet the developing world is told to keep inhaling that smoke so we can feel good about raising, uh, reducing CO2 by an imperceptible amount. Uh, Patrick Moore was a co-founder of Greenpeace. He left Greenpeace over Greenpeace's drift. And uh, what he said about this is the environmental movement has become the greatest obstacle to development in the developing countries. So, so this is an oppression of the poor of the first order to tell them you can't have, uh, you know, you can't have, you have coal, but don't use it because we, feel good, we don't feel good about you using it. I am curious about the claim that the environmental measures are what's restricting the development of the developing nations because I actually read the Paris Climate Accords and one of the things that you see is that there's massive grants for developing nations to provide energy. So I'm not disagreeing with the idea mm -hmm. that we should not restrict, I, I do not think we should restrict carbon-based fuels for developing nations, but I, I don't think that's what's actually happening politically from everything that I see. Yeah. Okay, so what I've seen is saying, no, in fact, it's the other. It's that we will provide you with money if you use electric, uh, like, panels. And, and, but panels produce nothing. They produce absolutely nothing compared to what people need. A panel will, serve, you know, will burn, you know, the panel you can afford to give an average African will not barely write light or light bulb. Right, but it's not like they're restricting the no, they are, because they are working with the governments of those countries to tell them not to develop that, and we're giving you money if you don't have it. So we'll, we'll discuss it later. So, um, so this is the humanitarian side. This is why it's in a theology on tap talk, because God created us, and we have a duty for, for protecting human life and protecting human flourishing. Creation was made for us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God saw that all that he's made, and behold, it was very good. God called it good. And God did this, God said this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, fill the earth, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the, of the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And the cultivation of the earth is part of our mandate. It's our creation mandate. If it's, if, now, I ask you this. If you are a designer of something and you want something to happen, wouldn't you build that into your design? If you're an engineer that, you know, uh, design a, a wall, would you design it so that if somebody leans on it, the whole thing falls? I don't think so, right? If you are, wouldn't it be reasonable to think that God designed the climate system so that the very thing he asked us to do, which is to fill the earth and subdue it, would cause a catastrophic instability and negative and positive feedbacks to, to blow everything apart? Would that be reasonable to expect? Or would it be reasonable to expect that God would design the climate system to be dominated with negative feedbacks for stability, for ability to absorb uh, the whatever is the consequence of us carrying out what he's asked us to do. Self-regulating, self-correcting, that's, that's entirely expected. And by the way, what are we talking about anyway? Are we talking about a, 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 what are we talking about in terms of these temperature rises? 
The temperature rises are of the order of the number for in the last 120 years, that's the temperature rise on the left. From 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. of a typical city, and all those different curves are different cities in the country, you get a bigger temperature rise on a typical day. From, from, you get orders of magnitude more, more rise from going from su summer to winter than, than what is expected to happen over a century. Okay, so, so uh, here's another one. Um, this is temperatures for every year from 18, whatever, 1880 to now in Central Park, New York. From summer to winter, look at the variation in temperature. People adapt in, from spring to summer by putting on a coat, by, putting on, by doing whatever it takes to, to adapt to a changing climate or changing temperatures from summer to winter. How is it that we're centuries in, you know, ahead? We would have such a panic over a degree or two? What is, you know, we do that in a, in a typical day. We do that in a typical hour. Uh, so, so there's just something discordant with it all. And the other aspect of this is this, that poverty, and this is Calvin Beisner, who um, I stole this slide from, um, poverty is a much greater risk to human flourishing uh, than anything related to climate or weather. He makes this, claim, uh, this, this, this statement that you take the 10th percentile income American, um, the American for whom 90% of the country makes more money a year. That, that American makes about $40 a day. Okay? He can live anywhere on the earth and have enough money for food and shelter to survive and, and, and make it. But that's not poverty. When you have poverty at $2 a day, you can't be at any place where you can, you can thrive. And, and so any, any plan that sacrifices a war on poverty a, uh, or a, a efforts to, to enable people to rise out of poverty, uh, you know, it, that sacrifices that for some other climate reason, the climate is not a big problem for humanity. But poverty is. And cost-effective energy is essential for human uh, flourishing. The goal is human flourishing. Do, do, does, do the rocks in, in um, Mercury care about what is happening in Pluto? Do, does the inanimate universe care about inanimate universe? Why do we care about molecular arrangements anyway? Why do we care what molecules are rare in this universe? Why do we care? We care because we care about humans. And if we forget that it is all about human flourishing, we just sort of like totally lost the idea. It was all about human flourishing. It wasn't about what molecule is where. Conservation of matter says it's going to be somewhere. You know, uh, why do we care? Um, except that it matters for human flourishing. So human flourishing is the objective. So when we ask about whatever policy we should ask is, does it on the, on the, on the whole affects human flourishing? Alex Epstein uh, does a good job of talking about this. Here is, uh, over the last 2,000 years, global CO2 emissions is on the top left. It has is, it is gone way up. At the same time, life expectancy is, has the same curve. At the same time, world GDP per capita has the same curve. And at the same time, world population is, has the same curve, a similar curve. 
And, and this has been made possible through industrialization and fossil fuels. Fossil fuels pack more energy per, per unit volume, they are safer to transport, and they don't require mines you know, dug by children you know, of cobalt and other toxic material. And they actually work. So currently, that little yellow blip at the top is all wind and solar compared to what it takes to, to power the world that is flourishing. And that green is all the, um, all the oil and gas. On the, by the way, that bio, I think, includes all that wood, that uh, wood smoke that is bad. Um, in terms of, I mentioned climate resilience. You know, I said, you know, Central Park, the temperature changes much more than, in, you know, in a, in a year than, you know, we expect in a thousand years due to climate. Um, at the same time, um, so, so we can be we can, we can resilient against climate. In fact, it's more than that. With energy, you can manage uh, things. You can move things. You can run machinery. You can heat things. You can, you can transport yourself. With energy, you can do this. And you can see that the rise in CO2 is actually correlated with a dramatic, dramatic drop in uh, deaths, in climate-related deaths. Why is that? It's not because CO2 somehow reduces climate-related deaths. It's just that CO2 is correlated with industrialization and technology and, and, and energy production. And that energy production is what gives us resilience about, against climate-related deaths. And uh, while we're at talking about fossil fuels, I'll, I'll show, show you one pretty picture. You know, we, we have this picture of the fossil fuel industry and all the dirtiness it is that it has. But it's actually, when it's done right, it doesn't have to be this way. This is a project called Rigs to Reefs. Um, when an oil rig is done, uh, they've essentially figured out what you can do is just either topple it on its side or just cut the top of it. And that structure allows for the growth of uh, you know, sea, you know, barnacles and kelp and all of that stuff, and the fish essentially thrive near these things. And so um, uh, that's where I'm going to end it. There is more I could say, but I think uh, that's, that's, that's probably a good place to stop. So, all right. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.